Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. Welcome to the Newcomer Podcast. Excited to interview Albert Wegner of Union Square Ventures. He just published a book called The World After Capital and gave us an excuse to talk about universal basic income, the sort of revolution brought about by this new age of the internet, what he sees as transformation to a world from an industrial economy to sort of a knowledge economy. So really get into some of the big issues, talk about artificial intelligence, his early investment in Twilio, the Silicon Valley bank bailout and bank bailouts generally. So it's a fun conversation about you know the future of the world and the political system. And towards the end of the conversation, we talk about the state of software investing, state of climate investing, and the sort of Silicon Valley winter that we're all experiencing right now. So really enjoyed the conversation. Give it a listen. Thanks so much. Albert, thanks for coming on the podcast. We're excited to talk to you. I've been tearing through the world after capital and obviously a career's worth of venture capital gossip and experience to talk through, but thanks for coming on, Newcomer. It's great to be here. I, I think like me, the big conversation, like reading the book and the current moment is sort of this intersection of the rise of artificial intelligence, which to me is like proof of your argument that we're moving to sort of a knowledge economy and then paired with universal basic income, which is something that I think you're still very passionate about. Sure. At a moment where I, my perception, at least, is some of like the enthusiasm has like waned or like we can get into like where UBI is in terms of like, I don't know, something that is going to be politically achievable and our lifetimes. But I want to start off with the sort of intellectual idea behind your book. You know, like, can you just sort of give the listener a little bit of the economic transition that you see yeah. is going right now? The thrust of digital technology is that it is fundamentally different from the kind of analog machines that came before. And it is as different, I argue in the book, as kind of previous really large transitions. And so what are the previous really large transitions? Well, one is going from being, you know, foragers, hunter-gatherers to being agrarian. That's about 10,000 years ago. And then the second big transition is from the agrarian age into the industrial age. And I think so much of the mistake that policymakers all around the world have been making, and sometimes also corporations, is when digital came about, they were like, oh, these are machines, they're computers, they're machines, they're just like previous machines. So nothing to see here except they're nothing like previous machines. And so we are finding ourselves in this transition, but we're kind of trying desperately to keep ourselves in the industrial age by hook or crook. And, you know, things like quantitative easing and the central bank printing a lot of money, these are like attempts, failed attempts, to keep us in the industrial age. And instead, our obligation today is to try to invent this new age, to shape it, to help bring it about, and to help hopefully have a transition from the industrial age into what I call the knowledge age that will be a smooth transition. So that's the fundamental argument of the book. And that's kind of where we are finding ourselves. We're finding ourselves I, I'm gonna, I'm moment. gonna put it in the dumbest way possible and let you correct me. But like, you know, I was playing around on TikTok today. And as I read the book, that's like, in some ways, a misallocation of my time. Like, yeah. I don't even want really to be doing that. But I have few mechanisms to discourage it. TikTok... Sure gets away with like abusing my time. And there's no market really to step in to solve yeah. how I'm spending my time, right? Is that, ex no, that's, turn, so, turn so, that into so, something smarter. Yeah so, yeah, so, so you know, the argument of the book is that each age of humanity had kind of a defining scarcity. So 
you know, the furniture age, it was just food. Like you found enough food, you know, that was great. And then in the agrarian age, it became land. You had to have arable land in which you could grow something. And then in the industrial age, it became capital. Like who can build machines and buildings and railroads and infrastructure? And now the sort of defining scarcity is attention. Like what is it that we're paying attention to? And we have all these attention-sucking machines, right? So we have, you know, Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and whatever the latest one is, right? So our attention needs to be allocated to things. And how are we going to figure out this allocation? Well, a lot of things in the world get allocated by the price mechanism, right? And the price mechanism has been great for deploying capital. It's been great for making physical capital, but it's terrible for attention. Why is it terrible? Because the most important thing to pay attention for don't have markets. And when you don't have markets, you kind of have prices, right? Right. And a good example of that is like, you know, a lot of people are having kind of various kind of crises of meaning. And that's because if you don't consciously invest time in understanding where does meaning in my life come from, you're going to underallocate attention to sources of meaning. And then eventually you will find yourself in a place where like my life has no meaning, right? Or as humanity, you will underallocate attention to fixing big problems like infectious disease, right? Right. So like we had two warnings of coronavirus, like two separate ones. We had SARS and then we had MERS, each about 10 years apart. And were we prepared? Absolutely not. We were not paying enough attention to it. So is the answer the government stepping in to solve the attention problem or what's... You know, no, the answer it, that I'm proposing in the like book... It's personal the, responsibility or... Yeah. Well, the answer I'm proposing in the book is that step one is to free up a lot of attention. So much of our attention today is kind of trapped in these explicitly economically incentivized systems. So what do I mean by this? Most of us spend most day working for a living, right? And we have wages that determine what we do. And then we take that money, we spend it on consumption, and we have a huge machinery called advertising that's telling us how much we should be consuming, right? So we have a huge amount of attention trapped in this kind of work and consumption loop. We now see that with AI, for example, we could do a lot of the work and we don't need humans, so we could put human attention elsewhere. So I, I'm not really suggesting that right now the government needs to decide these are all the things that we need to pay attention to. I think a starting point is just to free up human attention. And then a lot of people may find naturally that they want to work on interesting things, right? So now, do I believe that government needs to spend money on some of these things? Absolutely, right? So if you take something like the climate crisis, it's a problem that is of such dimension that only the government can direct as much resources as we need in order to fight the climate crisis. So Yes. So I would say at the end of the day, there's two important motions. One is to free up attention. And then two is figure out what are the things that we need to collectively pay attention to. And I believe in that government has a role to play. Right. Because in some ways, like the game of the current economic system is that jobs can always capture your attention. It's like if we don't have something for you to do because AI is automating everything, there are always services that you can provide to another person at some new price. And therefore, you can be sort of wrapped up in this sort of market-based thing. I think you illustrate that some in the book. That's how people's time is efficiently allocated outside of their own preferences, right? I mean, I guess one fear of UBI, universal basic income, I guess we're transitioning into direct head-on UBI discussion, is that people need some sort of market incentive and that the market adjusts to tell them how to spend their time and that if they're totally free, they're not going to find meaning in that. Do you disagree with that argument? Yeah, I mean, look, I think 
a basic income isn't a panacea. It doesn't in and of itself solve all problems. And, you know, if we keep, for example, our existing education system and just add UBI, I don't think that's really going to work. Our existing education system is really geared towards creating kind of a uniform product of people who mostly lack curiosity because curiosity is not generally a good trait when you work for a company. The company wants you to go do what they want you to do and not be very curious and sort of have lots of other ideas of your own. So yes, if we keep the existing education system and then just pay people a bunch of money, a lot of those people might not know what to do with themselves. But I think people inherently, that's not a oh my God, people don't know, people aren't curious, people aren't interested. Young kids ask all sorts of questions, mostly to the annoyance of their parents, but kids are curious, they want to learn. And, you know, we also do see that adults retain that to a degree. So, you know, people go and they retire and, you know, some of them do nothing, but many of them take up a new hobby or they become socially engaged or environmentally engaged or politically engaged, you know, engaged in the community. So I think this idea that people are kind of not going to know what to do with them is wrong. But I do think we need to change the education system where we help people understand what their curiosity is, how to feed it, how to learn on their own, how to be a citizen, all those things that we would want them to be if they have more free time. So much of what you're saying resonates with me, to be clear. I mean, I I was sort of the, you know, kid in high school, you know, doing very well in school, but being like, why do we have grades and like writing columns, like maligning sort of the education system and how conformist it is. And Certainly, I've been excited by universal basic income, and you know, I wrote about it early. I mean, Andy Stern, you know, has been sure. a big proponent from Union World. My fiance actually did a documentary on Andrew Yang, so we've sure. followed him super closely. And there have been all these experiments, obviously, too. You know, I think Sam Altman has funded some. I think you're funding some. Yep. Is that right? What size of universal basic income do you think? we'd need for it to be meaningful or like what's the size of yeah i mean my wife susan danziger and i were funding a basic income trial in the city of hudson in new york and we're giving people 500 dollars a month for five years so it was at the time that we launched it it was the only small city basic income pilot that was also the only one that paid people for more than a year or two years so our view is that to really see the effects on people's lives you need to really commit to this for a longer period of time. But the amounts of money don't need to be re- very large. Now, you know, I think it's 500 enough, probably not. Maybe it could be 800 or 1,000, but it doesn't need to be, you know, many thousands. And we intentionally chose a lower amount because we wanted to show that even relatively low amounts, when they're guaranteed, have a really big outsized influence on people's ability to change how they live. What do you think they change about how they live? Well, I mean, we've seen some of the things happening. I mean, ironically, one of the things that people always say with basic income, people will stop working. But actually, a lot of the in our cohort, just at this point, about 128 people, the work has actually gone up. And that often has to do with that people have things in their lives that you know, like their car is broken, they don't have enough money to fix it, so they can't go to a job that would require a car to get there. So there are all these things that sometimes hold people back from working more. And by the way, this is one of the great things about basic income. It does not in any way, shape, or form discourage people from earning more, whereas the current welfare system very much does that, right? Because if you're on current programs and you start to work, you often face a 100% plus tax rate because you make money here, but then you lose all your benefits. And so like, it put this huge hurdle and then people say, well, why do people on welfare not work? I'm like, well, if you're 
marginal tax rate was 100%, would you go work? Probably not, right? Right. I mean, one challenge with UBI politically has been that in the abstract, both sides can find things to like about it, right? Conservative, you tell about it and they're like, oh, great, we get to strip away some of the bureaucracy of the safety net. A liberal, you say, oh, we're like helping poor people sort of more. That's great. But then if it were ever to become real policy, you know, and we sort of saw a test case with the payments during COVID, you know, the trade-offs are made, right? It's like, okay, we didn't strip away the safety net. We added money. So conservatives don't like it, you know, or vice versa. So I guess the question is first, is it about stripping out some of the safety net for you? And how do you see sort of the two sides of the political spectrum actually coming around to UBI? Yeah, I mean, I I see, you know, that we're going to need to change everything. And so, you know, so many of the discussions about like this tactical versus that tactical aspect of UBI are kind of mistaken because we have to change everything. I've just mentioned we have to change the way the school system works. We have to change the way the tax system works. People are always like, we can't change all those things. Those things are like, they haven't been changeable. Like, what are you talking about? But the reality is the longer we pretend that we can't change all of those things, the worse the actual transition will be, right? And so, you know, how bad was the transition from the agrarian age to the industrial age, where it was a series of revolutions and then ultimately two world wars? That's bad. That's really bad. And guess what? We changed everything. Like, we changed everything. We went from living in the countryside to living in the city. We went from having, you know, these big extended families to having nuclear families or no families. We went from having lots of commons to lots of private property. And we changed the way religion works. Like we changed everything. And so the irony to me is sort of that this happened only like physically started a couple hundred years ago and finished, you know, call it roughly 1945, give or take. Right. right? So this is a very recent event. And yet people look at this incredibly powerful technology that we now have and go, oh, a few incremental changes here that will fix it. So like this tactical discussion about UBI, to me, is sort of mistaken. It's like trying to fine-tune something on a new system that we don't have when we have to build a whole new system, right? And so, like, do I know exactly what UBI should look like? No, but I can tell you that we need something like it, for sure, and we need to change education, and we need to change the tax code, and we need to change everything. And so it's kind of always funny when you get caught in these little, like, oh, but explain to me exactly how this thing is going to work. Definitely, your book has a manifesto-esque, <laughs> you know, it is sort of like, it is a revolution. I guess my question to you then would be, do you think that most people today believe there's been this sort of economic revolution, right? You know, there's a socialist at Slate who's sort of gaining some popularity. He was criticizing SVB. And a lot of the tactic there is actually like, actually nothing is revolutionary in the tech industry, right? I don't know. You can see people on all sides of the political spectrum in some ways downplaying how revolutionary technology has been. Do you think it's a consensus view that we are in the middle of this like true economic revolution? Well, it's more than an economic revolution, right? In my mind, I think that's important because it's just a revolution in capabilities, So the way I think of technology is what technology does is it changes the set of capabilities that humanity has. And then the things you can do include both good and bad things, right? So the earliest technology that we had as humans was fire, right? And fire is great because you can cook meat, which gives it a lot more calories. You can make 
clay and pots and other things, but you can also use it to burn down somebody else's village, right? So I don't see how anybody can look at digital technology and go, oh, this doesn't vastly, and I mean vastly, change the set of possibilities of what humanity can do, right? right. So like, for example, I can learn pretty much anything that's ever been taught on the internet for free. Right. That is so radically different from anywhere where we've been, right? I can put some content up that is legible by anybody who's connected to the internet. Right. I now have machines that can talk like a human, right? That can create output that we previously, if you had seen this output, you'd be like, that's a very intelligent person who wrote that. That's very well written. This is very clear and concise, you know, like all those things. And like, if anybody can look at that and go, there's nothing to see here. I don't know. I just like, to me, that's crazy. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I agree largely, but I mean, artificial intelligence or this wave of generative AI Yeah. Do you think it's just sort of improvement along the same radical direction we've seen? In my book, I write a little bit about nonlinear technological change. And the example I give is heavier than air flight, right? So, you know, for thousands of years, humans dreamt about flight because they could see the birds fly. Like, oh, well, the birds can fly. Why can't we fly this? And then we couldn't do it, couldn't do it, couldn't do it, couldn't do it until the early 1900s when the Wright brothers kind of were among the first to figure it out. And then we went from figuring it out to getting to the moon in like 50 plus years, right? Like around 50, 60 years, give or take, right? So that's how you have to think of AI. Like we couldn't do it, couldn't do it. Like even recognizing faces, like something we humans do all day, every day, super easily. Like even like babies can do, like dogs can do, like, you know, we couldn't do it. And then all of a sudden we can't. And now the rate of progress is just extraordinarily fast, right? And many people in the field have been taken aback by just how fast the progress has been. Right. These are people like Jeff Hinton, who was one of the early pioneers of using neural nets, you know? And even somebody like Jeff is like, I can't believe how much this is accelerating. So yeah, no, this is very real. This isn't like some parlor trick or some kind of, you know, incremental thing. This is a complete change in the capability set of what others can do. And, you know, the writing on this has been on the wall for some time. So even I am surprised by the degree of acceleration, but I have, you know, I've been around computers since I was 13, which is well over 40 years ago at this point. I've always been intrigued by AI and I've followed its development closely and we have completely reached a new stage of what's possible Are you making investments? Oh, absolutely. We're making investments. This is going to change the way we interact with machines in a very significant way. And it's going to change where machines can be used. Now, it will always take time, right? So I remember first seeing the web in 93 and going, oh my God, newspapers are dead like tomorrow. And then it took 20 years, right? And you can look at GPT-4 and look at the computer code, for example, and it produces and go, oh my God, we're not going to need software developers tomorrow. And that's wrong. We are going to need software developers because the system has a huge amount of inertia. And so getting the code writing capabilities of GPT-4 and more networks to come out there deployed and replacing or, you know, dramatically shrinking, for example, engineering teams, that takes time. You know, there's a lot of people who are like, I've got all these deliveries to, you know, I'm just managing my team. And like, we don't even have the time to explore how to use this. So like, for this technology to go from here is its capability set to it's having an actual impact takes 
a t some time. Have you announced investments or? We've made two investments, one in a company that basically uses AI to understand human emotions better. And one in a company that really reduces the barriers to creation even further. So, you know, think of it like what a macro is in Excel. Like, you know, somebody gives you a macro, they have programmed it, and now you just fill in the formula and it does a lot of things. You can think of this like the same for this type of generative AI. Like, here's a kind of a wrapper so that you can type the simplest thing and you don't even have to be like a clever prompt engineer to go get something done. I mean, USV, obviously, famously early investor in Coinbase. I feel like there's sort of, I mean, we haven't talked about crypto and sort of your utopian vision here. And there's also this sort of cultural clash between crypto and AI world that I don't know if I'm well positioned to articulate, but I feel like you can sense on the internet. I don't know. Do you sense this sort of like, there's some sort of intellectual disagreements between sort of the diehard crypto people and sort of the AI. I'm not sure. I mean, these are like always like various intersecting circles, but right. let me make a couple of observations. One is there are interesting crypto projects happening to try and create a basic income outside of the state mechanism, right? These are very early and they're very small, but they're interesting. Like and Sam Altman has WorldCoin or what? Well, no, I mean, like Circles is a good example. That's a project that Susan and I have supported. There's another project called Impact Markets. There's a project called Proof of Humanity. So there's a bunch of people working on this, and that's interesting. Then the other thing that's interesting about crypto is that you can use it to sign digital items, right? And so in a world where it's very easy to create fakes at the push of a button, it becomes more important to sign everything so that you can sort of say this like we could each use our keys, for example, to sign this recording before you publish it. And then, you know, that will be the official version. And if somebody, you know, spliced in some content that had me or you saying crazy things, we could be like, yeah, but that's not signed. Like this is signed with our key. Oh, I see. It's sort of an anti-AI or like, or a defense again, not anti, but sort Yeah, of, it's just, it's an authenticity oh, right. certificate, exactly. essentially, right? Yeah. And so crypto infrastructure will turn out to be very useful for that, right? Because we could also take the video asset and persist it on chain. So you can always point to it, it's permanently persisted, it's signed by us. And so, you know, somebody trying to create a fake would not have access to those signatures. And as a result, their fake would be unsigned. So I do think that there are interesting intersections. I also think, for example, that it may be possible to use the crypto type mechanism to incentivize training for an AI. So if you think about OpenAI, they you know, raised billions and billions of dollars and the training run for GPT-4 alone probably cost hundreds of millions of dollars, like a single training run, right? But you know, then you look at the amount of hardware dedicated in the world to running Bitcoin and you could kind of see that with the right design, it might be possible to have a decentralized version. Now, there's algorithmic issues and there's issues of latency and all sorts of things. A decentralized version of like the GPU, like... Yeah, exa GPUs? exactly. Yeah. You know, you could have decentralized contribution of GPUs to model training. And lots of current AWS doesn't even seem to have totally figured that out. Like, <laughs> want centralized come first where it's... Well, I mean, look, I I'm just... You asked me about the intersection yeah, between yeah, 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 AI sure. and crypto, and I'm saying I think there's many different ways in which those two intersect, many meaningful yeah. and important ways. On the UBI question specifically, like, do you think crypto is the main path 
for deploying it or you're more? No, I, I don't think so. I mean, in the book, I write about how, you know, everybody's always focused on, oh, we got to, you know, cut these benefits or going to raise taxes. And that's because everybody's just thinking about the fiscal mechanism. And the fiscal mechanism is one mechanism and we should make some use of the fiscal mechanism. But we've also been printing a metric ton of money. And that money has been distributed via the bank mechanism where it goes to God knows who, right? And so I'm a big fan of getting to basic income through a combination of the fiscal mechanism and the monetary mechanism. So I think we should switch to whole reserve banking or full reserve banking. And then we should just give money to people directly. You're still growing the money supply as the economy grows, but you're entering the money supplies, entering via the people. People sometimes call this quantitative easing for the people, QE for hmm. the people, as opposed to QE for wealthy or the banks, right. right? And so I believe we have many mechanisms at hand. By the way, that ties it to the current banking crisis, right? If we had whole reserve banking, there are no bank runs, right? In the whole reserve world, there is no possibility of a bank run. The banks are always fully backed. I know you want to talk about this as a sort of utopian, almost like on purpose, but... I mean, it's hard for me not to want to know the immediate political moves. To me, like UBI, Andrew Yang, despite wanting to come off as like an independent, ran in the Democratic primary. Like it feels like in America inherently, this is like something that you would need to get the Democratic Party to embrace in order to become sort of policy in the United States. Do you disagree with that? Well, I think... In the U.S., it feels to me like there are a couple of different motions available, right? So one is for a candidate to kind of succeed inside the Democratic Party. It's actually also not impossible for a candidate to succeed with this inside the Republican Party. I mean, the Republican Party today is very different from even before Trump. And so it's not impossible that either party gets a candidate that is charismatic and delivers the message and appeals to people and parties go, well, we'll throw our weight behind this person, right? As has recently been proven to be possible. I mean, I'd love to see it. I find it very hard to believe. Like to me, my view on like a DeSantis is like, I mean, we saw in the Trump presidency, right? It's like talk a lot about cultural issues and then come in and cut taxes. And it feels like any of the candidates that's going to get support in the Republican primary is going to get people really upset about trans issues and then change and, you know, cut taxes. Like, that is like everything that's happened. And in some ways, it, this is where the sort of, I don't know, political pragmatist versus sort of, I think often in venture, there's a desire to talk in sort of big picture. But then the reality is. At some point, we're not going to have a choice, right? So at some point, we will be forced by external and or internal events, right? So, you know, I think if you look at the late agrarian age, right? So if you look who was in power politically, it was landowners. And when landowners saw what this new industrial infrastructure could do, they didn't think, oh, here comes the industrial age. They were like, oh, how can we have more land? Like, you know, how can we build tanks and battleships to have more land? And ultimately, this wasn't decided by them. It was decided... By others. And I think, you know, we can sit here all day and sort of say, oh, you know, it's hard to make this a political reality, but it'll happen. This current system is past its expiration date. It will hmm. not survive. So it's just a question of, are we going to get a somewhat smooth transition or are we going to get a horrible transition? You know, all this is playing out against the backdrop of the climate crisis, which is accelerating at an extraordinary pace too. So there's external forcing functions, there's potentially internal forcing functions. So now, the reason I'm writing the book, the reason I'm going on podcasts like yours is just to say it's not too late to actually make radical changes ourselves and not have them be forced upon us. 
Right. And it's not too late for that yet, but eventually it'll be too late. And so, you know, I think we are making some progress on things like ranked choice voting that opens the door for outside candidates. It's not inconceivable at some point that there might be a third party that people might splinter off. And if you have ranked choice voting, they might actually get somewhere. So I don't think we have exhausted the mechanisms. And if the crisis gets bad enough, we may decide that we need more radical change anyhow. So is the crisis as you see it a jobs crisis? I mean, to me, that's what people would respond to, right? If AI is taking away jobs in some way, or what do you see the crisis or it's a crisis of meaning or what's the Well, crisis? the crisis is, I think, uh, ongoing deteriorating conditions for a large part of the population of economically deteriorating positions, ongoing deterioration of the environment, you know, ongoing deterioration of the banking system that we all rely on. And so I don't know exactly what the tipping point is or what the bad thing is that happens. I think it'll be blindingly obvious in hindsight and very hard to predict and, you know, going forward. But like, it's not that hard to see what the pressure points are. It's not that hard to see why people are upset. I mean, I think, you know, Hillary Clinton dismissing Trump voters as despicable is is a horrible thing. Like there are people whose lives have been destroyed by globalizations, whose families have been destroyed, you know, who've lost their livelihoods, who've, you know, become addicted to drugs and so forth. I mean, People have very real problems. And now, did Trump want to actually solve those? No, but like, did people actually have a reason why they were rejecting the system? And then right. when you look at, you know, what Democrats have been doing, Democrats have been bailing out Wall Street, you know, right? I mean, like, banks are more powerful than they were before the global financial crisis. No banker because, ever you're went saying to prison. Because of the Silicon Valley Bank bailout and the related bailouts to that, or? No, I'm just I'm just saying go back to 2008 to go back to the global sure. financial crisis, right? 2008 was extremely bipartisan. I mean, probably potentially a mistake, but definitely a bipartisan move. I mean, do you disagree with the Silicon Valley Bank bailout? No, no. I mean, we had no choice, right? So, like, it, the U.S. had something like 300 plus banks that had negative equity. So, like, you can't. Like, if you give Silicon Valley bank depositors a haircut, you're basically looking at shutting down another 300 banks and winding up with, like, six banks in the U.S., you know. <laughs> so I, that was never an option. I mean, it's a weird regulatory failure, right? So banks are regulated, and the stuff was visible months ago. Like, in November, it was visible that Silicon Valley Bank had negative equity. That was visible right. in November. And basically... We could ask this question, how do we wind up with this weird banking system where lots of banks failed at the most basic function of banking, which is to think that interest rates might rise. And if interest rates rise, you know, you need to look what kind of assets you're holding and, you know, you need to hedge your interest rate risk. And like a lot of banks just didn't do it. By the way, very large banks didn't do it, except that very large banks benefited from assets going there when there was a flight to safety. Whereas if you had assets leaving... Like Silicon Valley Bank had assets leaving for two reasons. Startups burn cash. That's what they do. Right. And number two, people were like, oh, I can make 4% interest on bonds. Like, so why shouldn't I be holding T-belts instead of being in my checking account? So you have those two cuts of cash outflows. Pretty soon you have to realize your losses, which is what they had to do. So the I mean, point I'm there, making there was is, a Trump administration bill to lower the standards for regional banking. Yeah, but yeah. people like to point to that and say that's the reason. But 
It's not the reason. Bank of America had exactly the same mistake. Right. In terms so, of buying bonds that they shouldn't have or in terms of holding bonds right. that were worth a lot less because right. they were low interest rate bonds and right. they hadn't hedged the interest rate risk. So when interest rose, it wiped out something like, you know, theoretically sixty percent of Bank of America's equity. So right. this wasn't limited. So people are like, oh, it, this only happened because we changed this. Like, doesn't matter whether you changed it or not. This was all public data. Like regulators could still have said, holy cow, we need to step in much earlier. Like we need to step in. Basically, the second the Fed started really raising interest rates, bank regulators should have been like looking at every single bank right. and scrutinizing it in depth. And that didn't happen. Or if it did happen, they scrutinized it and then decided to do nothing, which right. you know is even weirder. So Unisquare Ventures wrote a letter to its founders warning them about the Silicon Valley Bank situation. Can you give us some of the backstory? Well, on we, that we what we did is in November of last year, we went to our portfolio companies and we did not say a word about Silicon Valley Bank. We just went to all of our portfolio companies. Once we had figured out that SVB was at risk, we went to all of our portfolio companies and we said, look. You need to have more than one operating account. You need to keep your money in assets that are, you know, not on the bank's balance sheet for any bank, whatever bank you're with. So like, you know, if you have a lot of assets, move them into T-bills, ladder T-bills, move them into a money market fund that holds T-bills, right? So just don't keep them on bank's balance sheet. So we did that with most of our portfolio companies, which is why we had very little issues. But then on the actual event, you know, as SVB's stock was in freefall, we're like, SVB's going out of business. If you still right. have money there, you got to move it. And, you know, like, look, hindsight is 2020. Could you be like, oh, well, it's clear that it was going to get bailed out? Okay, but it wasn't clear. And frankly, you know, that weekend was a very fraught weekend where there were people in the administration arguing vigorously for, you know, forcing SVB depositors to take a haircut. Or to allow them to be exposed to the risk that they would take a haircut if SVB's holdings weren't enough to pay them back. I mean, it's possible that SVB's holdings would have been enough to cover everybody without the bailout. Um, no. <laughs> Not possible. Just like no. your position was too bad and obviously too bad is your position. Yeah. I mean, you're complaining about the 2008 financial crisis, but it feels like Silicon Valley isn't willing to bite the same bullet with Silicon Valley Bank, right? I mean, no, the problem is it, if it had just been SVB, I think there would have been a legitimate argument, but it wasn't just SVB, it was 300 banks. It was never a choice for the government. Like if it had just been SVB, if like, you know, you'd be like, okay, that seems fair. Like, you know, people backed with SVB. I mean, I think there's this other whole question, like, should people really have to scrutinize their bank's balance sheet to understand right, right. that their bank is solvent yes. or not? I, clearly, like, I, yeah. Let's leave that aside for a moment. Like, if this had been limited to SVB, I think you could have made a strong case for people should take a haircut. But it wasn't, right? And so, like, government had one of two options, like, bail out SVB or face a bank run on something like 300 banks in the U.S. But I think there's still a very live argument about whether the bank run itself was what created a contagion fear for all these banks or whether it was the key sort of long-term duration issue. You know like the old the government... saying, how do you go bankrupt? Very slowly at first and then all at once, <laughs> right? right? Yeah. So the bank run on SVB didn't start on that Wednesday or Thursday. It had started in November. Right. Totally, yeah. By the way, in November already, 
when they published their 10Q. There had been $3 billion in outflows in the month before. And in the 10Q, there's a footnote that says, if we take our whole to maturity holdings and we mark them to market, here's how much less they'd be worth. Right. And in November, that was all of SVB's equity, all of it. Right. So now you combine that with more outflows, the actual day of the background, that was just the finale, but it had already happened. Right. SVB was already a dead bank walking weeks before that. I believe just for like the listener, like a key piece of this is that then the government comes in and says, okay, we'll bail people out of these hold to maturity positions where if they're held, they're okay. But at the current market rate, they're underwater because you could get a much better interest rate today. And like they could have done that. I mean, yeah, I mean, this is sort of a criticism of the government where they could have done that earlier and potentially staved off a lot of these issues. That's um, my point. Right. That's exactly the point I'm making. Like, like this was knowable. If it was knowable by us as Union Square Ventures, it sure was knowable by bank regulators. But you're making we, me play we, libertarian we derived, in some we way. We derived ours but, from but the, public information, not like this, there was no inside information. This is how markets are supposed to work. The government, you know, nobody's totally sure. You're not like, you weren't like going on CNBC and like calling, you know, there's a, obviously you gave the advice and I like full credit, but I'm saying, you know, you have markets because no one is fully certain. It's hard to have a single government actor who knows. And part of how we've created our banking system is that they can fail. And therefore, you know, that's how we sort of prove out whether they're good or not. Right. I mean, that that's just how markets work, that you have to allow failures if markets are going to work. Right. And if bankers are subject to the market system, they need to. Bail. I would agree with you. But that particular that's my point about the global financial crisis. We let, you know, basically two places fail and then we bailed everybody else out. And we made it easier for them to basically do the same thing again, which is to screw up royally and screw up royally at a systemic level. So yes, any one of those banks isn't systemic, but if you have 300 of them, that's kind of a systemic problem, right? So yeah, it's one thing to say people need to be able to fail. Absolutely people need to be able, but large correlated failure in the banking sector is not the market. That's like wiping out like a core piece of financial infrastructure. So I think, I'm all for things failing. It's great. And again, if SVB had been some isolated thing, by all means, the government should have just been right. like, you know what? It is what it is. And, you know, whatever isn't insured, you know, we're going to have to work it out and you'll get whatever you get. Like, absolutely. Would have been great. But it just wasn't isolated. Right. Well, they pair the announcement. <laughs> I don't want to keep on this forever, but they paired the announcement with Signature, which seemed like a troubled bank on its own. In some ways, it helped fuel the narrative that there was this like big contingent risk. Where and it seemed like a bank like First Republic very well could have been fine without the fear, right? I mean, the fear is the sort of really hard to quantify thing because it was running wild with regional banks. Well, the issue is this. Again, if the banks hadn't made this mistake, and if they hadn't made this mistake at scale, meaning lots of banks have made it, we would have been in a different situation. But that's not the situation where we're in. I mean, it's a complete hypothetical. And people right. are like, well, if this happened, like, well, it wasn't. You know? So right. it's like, <laughs> but this all ties together. This is, I think, the point I'm trying to make. This all ties together. We have chosen a particular banking system, which is fractional reserve banking. And we have then used quantitative easing to try and use this fractional reserve banking system to fix problems that are deeper and more profound and more structural problems. And guess what? It didn't fix those problems. And as a result, we now wind up with a bigger problem, which is we are now winding up with this problem where 
the dollar as a global reserve currency is something that is becoming questionable. Right. And so, like, when people think the banking crisis is over, I think that's a mistake. We are entering the worst and most complicated phase of this because we have been very reliant as a nation on the dollar being the global reserve currency. And that gig is slowly up. And so, you, sorry, so you, you want to nationalize the banks or you want to make sure the banks hold all the deposits basically that they lend out? Basically, I'm a fan of whole reserve banking. So in whole reserve banking, the banks can't just go to the Fed and make some money, you know? By the way, the interesting thing about basic income and whole reserve banking is that they were both championed by people like Milton Friedman who aren't exactly known as progressives, right? Right. So I'm not a Milton Friedman fan overall, but when it comes to banking and basic income, I think he had good ideas. And so my point is these things, this is really what I'm trying to get across and what I'm trying to get across in the book is all these things are connected to each other. The banking system, the tax code are connected to our ability to do something like basic income. And you can't, when people are like, oh, how are we going to pay for this? Like, you're going to have to change the tax code. You're going to have to change the banking system. And by the way, we need to change the banking system anyhow. This is broken. Like, deeply, irrevocably broken. Right, right now, we have the worst of all possible worth. We have fully insured fractional reserve banking. Like, that's a really terrible system. Right. And why do we need to change everything? We need to change everything because we've made a huge, as humanity, a huge technological breakthrough with computers. And now with the things computers can do, in particular with AI. And twice in the history of humanity, when we've had huge technological breakthroughs, the first being agriculture, the second being, you know, like chemistry and machines and electricity and stuff. Like when those huge breakthroughs have happened, we have changed everything. We have completely reinvented the system. Yeah. And so when I hear like socialism versus capitalism, like that's an industrial age debate. That's not the debate <laughs> we should be having. Those are industrial age concepts. So like... I don't care whether you are trying to fix this by a socialism or capitalism. Right. Those are both the wrong concept. I mean, you talk in the book about, you know, just being an optimist by disposition. And that's something that's, I think, you know, venture capitalists try to hold on to. But I, I do think, you know, there has been a sense on some of, you know, I don't know, the Andreessen Horowitz's of the world of like nihilism. Like, I just hear this vision. I'm like, I don't know if you could sell all your fellow VCs on this vision because it does require optimism about what government can do or what people can do collectively through some sort of central organization. Like, have you tried to persuade any of the other venture capitalists of the world? And what do you hear back from them? No, I mean, you know, the thing that I find is, is my book resonates, I find, especially with younger people in tech who, you know, I believe, have retained some optimism that we can figure out how to use this technology, not just for bad things, but also for good things. And how, you know, historically, we have been great beneficiaries of technology, right? I mean, if we hadn't figured out to build tractors and so forth, we would all still be working in the field. So we wouldn't be having this conversation right now, right? So I think, you know, it resonates somewhat less well with people who believe that all problems can be solved by markets. You know, and in the venture capital industry, there are a lot of people who believe that all problems can be solved by markets. I think that's wrong, and I argue in the book why that's wrong. So I think it resonates with people who have a little more of an open mind, and that tends to be, not always, but tends to be younger people. You famously invested super early in Twilio. I actually did a big profile of Bessemer, and I think you were the one. You got in when they should have done it or they thought about it. And, you know, it was a sort of high-flying sort of pandemic stock that's sort of come down to earth and is, I don't know, part 
just like a company that has come to like represent a lot of like the excitement of software and sort of sometimes disillusionment. What do you take of all the narratives imposed on Twilio and like what should people take from its journey in terms of making investments today? Well, I mean, I think more broadly speaking, we've had a big correction in tech valuations. And I think part of that is because software has become more routine and more boring. And that's actually a good thing, right? So, you know, when companies like, I remember when Snowflake went public at like a hundred times revenues, I'm like, well, that's not really a sustainable valuation, is it? No. And so, so I think over time, the stock market, even though it has lots of aberrations along the way, but over time it's, well, gee, eventually these companies have to produce earnings and eventually those companies should be valued on earnings and not just a potential, but on actual earnings, not future, but like, you know, I think the story here is that there are great businesses out there and sometimes they get really overvalued and then sometimes they get really undervalued. And then, you know, sometimes it finds a kind of a good middle, but I don't think there's anything particularly about the story of Twilio or, or any one other company outside this rather larger sort of idea for a moment that, you know, each one of these companies was going to be fabulously profitable at some future point. And so not going to have competitors, not going to have margin pressure and so forth. And I just think we've woken up to the fact that no, these are companies, they have competitors, they have margin pressure, they have their own growth issues, they need to revitalize their own technology, et cetera, et cetera. These are businesses like all other businesses and the rules of, you know, you have to sustain some level of profitability to be a valuable company still apply. It's kind of a maturation of software right. as an industry. And that's a good thing as far as I'm concerned. Do you have a view on what the right or the end state multiple is for some of these? I don't know, you know, it's hard to say companies? because so much of that, again, depends on monetary policy, right? And interest rates. And so I don't think that's worth trying to forecast at the moment in time when I think we have no idea what inflation or interest rates or monetary policy is going to do because we are in such, you know, unknown territory. So if you think about the Fed's balance sheet, you know, which got longer significantly during the global financial crisis, and then it got longer again by a lot during COVID. And then they were sort of slowly attempting to dial it back. And then the, you know, the new banking crisis happened and they immediately shot it back up. I think that story is far from having played itself out. And so we're back to this money creation and we're still not giving the money to the people who need it, which is everybody. So I think this is far from, this is so far from over. The idea that we have somehow stabilized the system is like we have created the appearance of stability, but not actual stability. And the appearance of stability is in some ways the more most dangerous thing because it lulls people into a sense of security when in fact the next careening out of control will only be that much more severe because we haven't created actual stability. If you could pick, sorry, you're drawing me back into the utopian debate, but if you could pick between the government, you know, giving everybody, you know, I don't know, $500 a what a month or using that money to like close like the deficit or reduce, buy down our debt. Do you have a, I, I don't think, I don't think this is, I, don't, I really don't think this is an either or discussion at all. Like but you're like spend more, this is always the problem. No, spend in more my mind, like, it, the, no, it's very easy. I think, you know, like we have a ton of tax loopholes that need to be closed. Like we cannot get to basic income without also changing the tax code. Yeah. For example, you know, I, I write about this in the book. 
Like, if you have a basic income set up, you should be taxing every dollar that's made. You shouldn't be like, oh, you get $14,000 free, whatever. Like, no, you're getting money from the government. So now every dollar you make, we're going to start taxing. And we could have a much simplified tax system. Hmm. But again, these things are incredibly hard. And so people are like, Albert, you're saying we need to complement one hard thing by doing another hard thing by doing yet another hard thing. I'm like, yeah, as it turns out, when you have a system where you have all these interlocking parts, the only way to get there is if you change all the parts. And that's also right. why getting there is so difficult. It's because people are like, oh, I want to just tweak this one thing. But like, no, you can't just tweak this one thing. We don't have the luxury of just tweaking one thing. You have this book, you have a number of causes. Is this a signal that in some ways you are investing less? Are you pulling? No, back? no, I've been very actively investing. We have, you know, we raised in during COVID, we raised a climate fund and we put that to work and we've raised a second climate fund and we're starting to put that to work. And I've made, you know, continue to make other software investments, you know, for instance, in a company called Viam that does an operating system for robots. I've made crypto investments like Wallet Connect, which is crypto infrastructure. So no, I've been, I've been keeping very active. Yeah, let's talk about the climate fund. I mean, it feels like the, you know, Silicon Valley obviously was famously burned by clean tech sort of a while ago. I, you know, I interviewed Chris Saka, I don't know, maybe a year and a half ago now for my newsletter about lower carbon. What's your read on, I guess, the venture ecosystems support for like the carbon thesis right now? Like, are you getting follow on? It feels like there's sort of an early stage ecosystem forming. Is there sort of the Series B and beyond layer. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a need for more capital, for sure. I mean, it's great to see that some of the companies in our climate fund have been able to raise follow-on rounds. Some of them easily, some of them had to work for it, but there have been a number of follow-on rounds. Overall, though, we are woefully under-resourcing climate relative to the significance of the climate crisis, right? And, you know, the few days in April that we just had where it was 90 degrees, you know, is a sign of the times, right? It's only going in one direction and it's going there faster. The latest IPCC report dropped during the SVB crisis, so nobody paid any attention <laughs> to it, but the numbers in it are eye-popping. I mean, they're completely eye-popping. And one has to keep in mind whenever one reads an IPCC report that those are the censored numbers, right? The worst numbers are never even included in the reports because the oil nations still insist on those being excluded. Hmm. So you basically, even when you censor the worst outcomes, you still get eye-popping numbers and you still get eye-popping observations. And this is not just forecasts, these are actual observations. Like the temperature of the oceans, for example, is completely off the charts. It's like in literally uncharted territory. So yes, I think we're going to see more capital come this way because the signs are there and because the very large funds, like the big pension funds, realize that you know if they want to take care of their pensioners, they can't just be producing one-year returns. They have to also make sure there's a planet on which those pensioners can live, right? Are there a couple of investments you can talk through and with this focus on like, oh, these I mean, how we, these we, companies we, make money? We know? have made very broad set of investments. You know, we've invested in electrification of transportation, for example, we're investors in a software company for electric vehicles and a charging network in India called Bolt. We're investors in a Another company that takes existing vehicles and retrofits them to EV called Shift in Egypt. We've done things on replacing fuels with sun fuel. So not everything can operate as an EV, like big heavy duty trucks will have a hard time being EVs because the battery is way too much. We have an investment in a company called Remora that captures the carbon that comes out of the tailpipe with the truck. We have an investment in a company hmm. called 
radiant that makes a very small nuclear reactor. Yeah, I was going to ask you about nuclear. Are you optimistic about those? Like, I yeah, know no, some absolutely. people think that's going to solve everything. Or... Well, nothing is going to solve everything. The idea that this is a, you know, it's like, just like UBI isn't the panacea for what we need, nuclear isn't the panacea, right? I mean, the scale of this problem, people still do not have a good sense of the scale of this problem. And the scale of this problem is going to require us to take a large percentage of GDP on a sustained basis and apply it to this problem. I personally said 50% of GDP, people think that's laughable, but like hmm. whatever you think, it's an order of magnitude, at least from where we are today in terms of what needs hmm. to happen. And so there isn't a single, just do this one thing and the climate crisis will be over problem. Like just to give some example, we have way too much carbon already in the atmosphere. It needs to be brought down. And we have the tools for doing that, but we need to deploy them. Like that means planting more trees, that means building more machinery that can scrub carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and so I forth. I feel like it's easy. On the one hand, you know, I hope, I imagine Silicon Valley people believing in the science and generally believing in it. But on the other hand, in a world of like exponential curves, I think there's almost too much confidence that like, oh, we'll find some technology and we'll underestimate how quickly you know, it will improve and therefore be able to solve this problem, whether it's climate capture or something else. Like, what do you what do you say to those sort of arguments? I believe we just need to deploy more stuff. And obviously, we can't stop innovating either, right? So because, again, you know, many people don't like the war metaphor, but I think the war metaphor is quite useful. You know, the kind of planes we had at the beginning of the war were different from the kind of planes we had at the end because it was rapid innovation. But we also built a lot of planes, and I think we need to take exactly the same approach. We need to take the stuff we have today, build a lot of it. And as we do it, we need to also improve it. And people are working on the improved stuff. It's not either or. It's not like, oh, let's just wait for the perfect innovation to come along and that'll solve all problems. That's stupid. We got to take the stuff we already have and scale it. And it would also be stupid to say, oh, the stuff we have, that's all we ever need. Like, let's stop innovating. I just think it's never either or. It's just both of these. Like, let's deploy a lot of what we already know is working. Like, you know forests work. <laughs> this is well known. Let's make sure we plant more trees. Like, that's easy. We know nuclear works. Let's build more nuclear reactors. That's easy. And then we also know like, oh, there are these potential huge unlocks, like fusion. Like, let's actually invest in fusion. Let's try that out. Let's, you know, invest in more storage. We have to do everything. And the problem is in order to do everything, there's some things we have to stop doing. And so part of that is like a lot of this sort of random overconsumption of stuff like needs to stop for a while and so like, like the economy or like what sort of the or well no i mean like people having 70 pairs of shoes you know <laughs> when you raise a climate fund at a venture capital firm like are you selling sort of the same return profile as like a yeah i mean our fund funds? isn't like a double bottom line fund or esg fund or whatever we are trying to produce venture style returns ask me a few years from now how that goes <laughs> but that's the plan yeah but and you find like are there limited partners? I mean, obviously you raise the fund, but in terms of we so raised it think- from pretty much the same limited partners that are partners in our other funds. We have a few people who are just in the climate fund because that's what they care about. But by and large, it's a huge overlap with our existing investor base. You think in the venture world, like some of these mega funds are going to go away? I mean, during dot com, you know, investors pulled back some of the LPs pulled back some of their money, and you saw, I'm sure, founders funds saying that they were going to shift how they allocated some of their money like i don't know what do you think happens to some of these like super funds well i think 
what happened, we can talk about what happened and then we can talk about what may happen. So what happened is that all the very large funds put out a huge amount of money in 21 and then immediately came back to the trough in 22. By the way, same is true for USB. We put a lot of money in 21 and then came back immediately in 22. In 21, a lot of funds got raised, including a lot of new funds. But in 22, only the existing funds raised money. So there was a kind of a flight to safety moment. And there was a moment where LPs already felt very overexposed. And when they felt overexposed, they were not going to lose their slot in Sequoia, let's say. So they were right. going to give Sequoia more money. So I think the real reckoning is not going to come for some time because all the big funds raised more capital in 22 and have fresh powder. And a lot of them have been deploying it very slowly. So I would say that whether or not these big firms are going to succeed longer term is going to get determined by the outcomes that play out over several years now because everybody's taking the foot of the gas dramatically. And I think the venture landscape, what's much more predictable is that many of the small funds are not going to make it. That is much more predictable. Right. Because there was a huge proliferation of tiny funds and they're not going to be able to raise follow-on funds even if they had good results in many cases, which is rather unfair, but there just isn't money around because if you combine the fact that big LPs are overexposed to the big funds and have the denominator effect, meaning their public holdings are down, like there's just not a lot of money to go around for the smaller funds. And I think that is very predictable. It feels a little unfair that VCs are getting blamed. You would think you'd be judged against your vintage year, right? Like if I launched at the worst time, but I did slightly better. I have some good companies out of it. I'm probably a good VC. Instead of getting judged just based on your timing of launching a fund during a particular vintage. But I guess that's just sort of the way Yeah, I had a statistics professor at MIT, Jerry Hausman, who would work into every lecture. He would finish some proof. And usually proof would show that you could conclude less from the data than you thought. And he would say, this just goes to show one more time that life is unfair. <laughs> Every single lecture, by the way. So, I love it. Thank you so much for coming on. I really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, my pleasure, Eric. Good talking to you. That's our episode. Thanks for Albert Wegner for coming on the podcast from Union Square Ventures. I'm Eric Newcomer. This has been the Newcomer Podcast. Shout out to Tommy Heron, our audio editor, Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, Young Chomsky for the great music. Like, comment, subscribe, YouTube, Apple. Obviously, subscribe to the Substack, newcomer.co. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week. Goodbye. 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 Goodbye.